0: Good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be on this rotating planetary sphere known across the galaxy and down through time as planet Earth. Actually, it's not known as that. I don't know what it's called out there. I mean, even the name Earth, which means dirt, is not the technical name of the planet. I believe it's Telus and I think that's Latin, and maybe that also means dirt. Anyway, no, Terra means dirt. Tellus is, is the planet. And that's a long story for another evening. Um, we're going to be doing some different things tonight. My guest, of course, is Dr. Richard Spence, and we're going to be exploring the origins of this really unique experiment in self-government called the United States of America. And we're going to take you back hundreds of years to the discussions and maybe false starts of several different iterations of what eventually became the United States. And we're going to do that in a very interesting way because, as you know, Rick is a great storyteller, and he is a heck of a teacher, and uh, I can't wait to hear us get into it. But before we do that, I wanted to go through a couple of news items and then give you some data points to kind of put the rest of the evening's discussion into context. First of all, it's very hard these days to kind of find any good news. I mean, it's really hard to find good news. For one thing, the mainstream is filled 24-7 with COVID-19, which after a while, you know, A, is incredibly overwhelming and oppressive because there is no good news on that front. We've got you know, over a million um of our citizens at the at the actual measurements and there're probably many, many more, who have come down with this thing, and over sixty I think it's now sixty five thousand people in this country alone have died. And you know, for all those people out there who say, Oh, the numbers are exaggerated and it's no worse than the flu, you talk to some of these nurses or doctors or that doctor the other day who went home to Virginia and wound up killing herself because she's seen so much death. And the thing that really bothers me the most is that all these people are dying in hospitals alone. They can't have their families with them. This thing is so contagious. And I know everything I've just said is wildly contentious and controversial and there are other points of view and again, when in history have we all argued over, you know, basic facts? Facts should be, as um, I think it was Jefferson who said, uh, you know, un, un, unshakable or immutable things. It's stubborn things. That's what he said, stubborn things. We're no longer even agreeing on on the same things. And again, um, in the third hour, when... Uh, Uh, George joins us, our resident metaphysician. Uh, We're going to talk about some very important philosophical perspectives as a kind of a prelude to what I'm going to do tomorrow night when I have the extraordinary honor of having Dr. Joseph Farrell as my guest. And we're going to be talking about some things in relation to this, this global situation, the pandemic, which are so far outside the box. We can't find the box. But I think we owe it to you to lay out on the table even the improbable improbable because this is so strange and so weird. Anyway, we're going to get into the weirdness factor and the outside-the-box thinking tomorrow night. Tonight, I want to talk about the country. I want to talk about what this is doing to the land of the free and the home of the brave because it's just so weird. And to to kind of set this up in context I found this a couple days ago and unfortunately I can't tell you who it's by who it was written by or I can't even tell you the author's name the the, uh, narrator but it is so emblematic of the aspirational nature of the land of the home of the free and the brave and so I wanted to play this tonight as a kind of a Context. If you kind of cast your mind back, I think this may have been written maybe in the 50s or 60s. It has that flavor, but it's a story that almost nobody knows about an event that everybody knows about. And here it goes. So relax and listen and think about where we have come from.
1: a lawyer once his name was francis scott key he penned a song that i'm sure you're aware of you've seen it it's in most hymnals throughout our churches it's called the national anthem it is our song as an american we go however to a ball game we stand in our church services and we sing the words of that song and they float over our minds and our lips and we don't even realize what we're singing most of us have memorized it as a child but we've never really thought about what it means let me tell you a story Francis Scott Key was a lawyer in Baltimore. The colonies were engaged in vicious conflict with the mother country, Britain. Because of this conflict and the protractedness of it, they had accumulated prisoners on both sides. The American colonies had prisoners and the British had prisoners. And the American government initiated a move. They went to the British and they said, let us negotiate for the release of these prisoners. They said, we want to send a man out to discuss this with you. They were holding the American prisoners in boats about a thousand yards offshore. And they said, we want to send a man by the name of Francis Scott Key. He will come out and negotiate to see if we can make a mutual exchange. On the appointed day in a rowboat, he went out to this boat and he negotiated with the British officials. And they reached a conclusion that men could be exchanged on a one-for-one basis. Francis Scott Key, jubilant with the fact that he'd been successful, went down below in the boats and what he found was a cargo hold full of humanity, men. And he said, men, I've got news for you tonight, you're free. He said, tonight I have negotiated successfully your return to the colonies. He said, you'll be taken out of this boat, out of this filth, out of your chains. As he went back up on board to arrange for their passage to the shore, the admiral came and he said, we have a slight problem. He said, we will still honor our commitment to release these men but it'll be merely academic after tonight. It won't matter. And Francis Scott Key said, what do you mean? He said, well, Mr. Key, he said, tonight we have laid an ultimatum upon the colonies. Your people will either capitulate and lay down the colors of that flag that you think so much of, or you see that fort right over there, Fort Henry? He said, we're going to remove it from the face of the earth. He said, how are you going to do that? He said, if you will, scan the horizon of the sea. And as he looked, he could see hundreds of little dots. And he said, that's the entire British war fleet. He said, all of the gunpowder, all of the armament is being called upon to demolish that fort. It will be here within striking distance in a matter of about two and a half hours. He said the war is over. These men would be free anyway. He said you can't shell that fort. He said that's that's a large fort. He said it's full of women and children. He says it's predominantly not a military fort. He said don't worry about it. They said we've left them a way out. And he said what's that? He said do you see that flag way up on the rampart? He said, we have told them that if they will lower that flag, the shelling will stop immediately. And we'll know that they've surrendered, and you'll now be under British rule. Francis Scott Key went down below and told the men what was about to happen. And they said, how many ships? He said, hundreds. The ships got closer, Francis Scott Key went back up on top, and he said, Men, I'll shout down to you what's going on as we watch. As twilight began to fall, and as the haze hung over the ocean as it does at sunset, suddenly the British war fleet unleashed.
2: He says the
1: sound was deafening. There were so many guns that there were no reliefs. He said it was absolutely impossible to talk or hear. He said suddenly the sky, although dark, was suddenly lit. And he says from down below, all he could hear the men, the prisoners saying was,
0: Tell us where the flag is.
1: What have they done with the flag? Is the flag still flying over the rampart? Tell us. One hour, two hours, three hours into the shelling. Every time the bomb would explode and it would be close to the flag, they could see the flag in the illuminated red glare of that bomb. And Francis Scott Key would report down to the men below. It's still up. It's not down. The Admiral came and he said, your people are insane. He said, what's the matter with them? He said, don't they understand? This is an impossible situation. Francis Scott Key said, he remembered what George Washington had said. He said, the thing that sets the American Christian apart from all other people in the world is he will die on his feet before he'll live on his knees. The Admiral said, we have now instructed all of the guns to focus on the rampart to take that flag down. He said, we don't understand something our reconnaissance tells us that that flag has been hit directly again and again and again and yet it's still flying we don't understand that but he said now we're about to bring every gun for the next three hours to bear on that point Francis Scott Keith said the barrage was unmerciful all that he could hear was the men down below praying a prayer. God keep that flag flying where we last saw it. Sunrise came. He said there was a heavy mist hanging over the land but the rampart was tall enough. There stood the flag completely nondescript in shreds. The flag pulled itself was at it a crazy angle the flag was still at the top. Francis Scott Key went aboard and immediately went into Fort Henry to see what had happened. And what he found had happened was that that flagpole and that flag had suffered repetitious direct hits. And when hit had fallen, but men bothers who knew what it meant for that flag to be on the ground. Although knowing that all of the British guns were trained on it, walked over and held it up humanly until they died. Their bodies were removed and others took their place. Francis Scott Key said what held that flagpole in place at that unusual angle were Patriots' bodies. He penned the song, O say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming. Or the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that the flag was still there. Oh, say, does that star spangled banner yet fly and wave? Or the land of the free and the home of the brave? The debt was
2: demanded,
1: the price it was paid.
2: Oh, say, can you see my God? Early light, what so proudly We came at the twilight last evening, whose broad stripes and bright stars. The red parts we watched were so gay. Gall-
0: Dr. Richard Spence is professor of history at the University of Idaho. His interests include Russian, military history, along with espionage, occultism, and anti-Semitism. His major published works include Boris Sabinov, Renegade on the Left, Trust No One, The Secret World of Sidney Riley, Secret Agent 666, Alistair Crowley, British Intelligence and the Occult, and Wall Street and the Russian Revolution, 1905 to 1925. Richard is the author of numerous articles in Revolutionary Russia, Intelligence and National Security, the Journal for the Study of Antisemitism, American Communist History, The Historian, New Dawn, and other publications. He has been interviewed on numerous programs and is a commentator and consultant for the History Channel, the International Spy Museum, Radio Liberty, and the documentaries produced by the Russian Cultural Foundation. Richard Spence, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight.
3: It's my pleasure, Richard. Here we are.
0: Well, you know, when I ran across this, I said that that is something you've never heard. The context of the creation of a meme, of an ideal, of of an aspiration. We have drifted so far from that meme. What happened?
3: The interesting thing about it is that this the thing you just played pre- presents itself as the, the true story of the Star-Spangled Banner, right? Yeah. And I, it isn't. Um, you know, I don't want to disappoint anybody out there <laughs> or disappoint you, but, you know, I'd have to say that it's not historically accurate. Okay, I'm going kind to of rain on your parade. And the main thing that struck me was that the fellow's talking about the colonies, right? Mm. It's the British, and they're working with the colonies. Well, the Star-Spangled Battle, the battle that's referred to, I think he mentions is the Battle of Fort McHenry, which was a small part of a larger battle of Baltimore. And it took place in 1814. Didn't take place ah. in November. Took place during the War of 1812 when the United States was already established. So there were no colonies. Okay? Colonies were not involved with this. It was the United States of America and had been for years. The interesting thing about it, though, is that the War of 1812 that this particular incident took place in is, I would argue, we might get into it later, I'd argue that the War of 1812 is the real American War of Independence hmm. because it, it secured an independence which had been legally recognized back in 1783, but had never really been enforced in many ways. So, yeah, it didn't take place in the colonial It is not part of the Revolutionary War at all. It took place, uh, you know, during the War of 1812. Like in fact, in September 1814. And you know, I you know and unfortunately it, it makes a much better story to say that there were hundreds of British ships. You know how many there actually were in the Battle of Baltimore?
0: <laughs> Probably two or three.
3: Yeah, well more than that. Nineteen.
0: Oh. You mean so 19, nineteen
3: ships. Hmm. Yeah. So Close. there were nineteen warships. Um and they in the battle itself, um, inside Fort McHenry, there were not piles of dead, four were killed. And really? Twenty odd wounded. Yeah. So it was a fairly ferocious bombardment, or as one as you can get, and and the flag was still there, and uh, the British did not secure Baltimore. Um, They had previously burned Washington, D.C., but they did not secure Baltimore. Because you see, in 1814, Washington, D.C. was an unimportant city, and Baltimore was important. There's one of the things that's changed.
0: Well, Baltimore was the port, right?
3: Yes, Baltimore was a was a city. I mean it was one of the few things you could probably qualify in early nineteenth century America as a real city and it was a, it was an important port. Uh, Washington was a relative remember it is it was a new creation. It was a city sort of, you know, created in a swamp. Uh, it was the center of the federal government, but as, as a city itself, it was really kind of a Virginian provincial town. I mean, it is not what it became later on. So from a from a military standpoint, that's the way to think of it, from a military standpoint, the capture of Washington and the burning of the White House had a psychological value, but Baltimore was what you really needed if you wanted to be able to supply an army. So there you go. Hmm. So it's... The thing about this, though, is that – well, I don't know. Let me, let me tell you a story to get back to this one, okay? Okay. And it has to do just with a kind of – what are the things
0: – See, this is why you're a the historian point? and I'm not. <laughs> <laughs>
3: well, uh, being able to connect things is part of this, sometimes even if they're not really connected. But – You know, having a lot of time on my or you know, spare time, or at least being stuck at home, Mm. I've I've been watching old movies. And one of the things I've wanted to do is take advantage of my Prime membership and Netflix. And so I've been been watching movies. I won't name them because most of them aren't very good, but they're ones (laughs) that I haven't seen in 50 years. All right. You know, at least probably that. That's I'm old enough to have ever seen a movie fifty years ago. Wow! And these are movies that I remembered, and the reason why I'm rewatching them is that I don't know. I'm trying to relive my youth or something. But but the interesting thing is, is that every time I watch one of them, I think I remember that movie, and I don't. Oh. All right. I mean, there are parts of it I remember, but I find that. Um, you know, here I'll give you an example. There is a, a 70s kind of schlocky but not that bad spy movie called The Kremlin Letter. All right? Okay. Uh, and I had remembered seeing that and um, I went back. Who was in it? I rewatched. Well, it was directed by John Huston, ah. Patrick Neal, uh, Richard Boone, Barbara Parkins. See, I just watched it so I can remember some <laughs> of them. <laughs> I mean, you know, it had John Huston at the at the helm of it, so it wasn't a a low budget production, but uh, very complicated kind of Raymond Chandler plot with a lot going on. Mm-hmm. And I actually thought I remember, and I'd, I'd actually carried some of these scenes around in my head for years. You know, the type of thing you kind of remember and you replay them, and, and it wasn't anything like that at all. Huh. I mean, it was. I, I was watching a movie. That was yes, the movie I recalled in some ways, but in other ways it was I was realizing that my, my recollections of this were were skewed. Um and it's one of those things that I I've seen in other cases as well. Even I mean films that I think that I, I have clear memories of. I don't have clear memories of them. I don't think it's just me. And part of it is that, that that's what that's what time does, what it does to individual memories and what it does to collective memories of things. And so the interesting way I can kind of segue this back into the Star Spangled Banner and the War of 1812 and, and the Battle of, of, of Fort McHenry is that, you know, in the rendition that was just given, I'm, I'm sure that the, the performer, of it, the person who wrote that, thought that they were putting forward the true story or, or something that they had heard. And it, again, it's one of those things that, that bears a kind of approximation to what really happened, but it's not really at all what really happened, and it's not when it happened. And that, from the standpoint of an historian, is kind of scary. Hmm. But it also, in some ways, points up, because it means that what you're trying to do as an historian is not go back and reassemble pieces of things. I mean, that's often what people, you know, they go back and you know, history is a kind of, you know, fallen cathedral, right? All right. It, you think of history as this sort of, and, and what historians do is they go back and they reassemble the cathedral. They reassemble the Roman forum. And,
0: yeah. We look at a lot change. of ruins around here. So yeah, I can, I can yeah. see that. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And, uh, but, but you can't really do that. I mean, the, the it's, it's constantly changing. As as soon as an event occurs within the individual and collective memories that experience in that experience that over time it will change and it will shift and little bits of it will combine with something else and so very often what we remember is not truly what happened and then we can begin to impose certain things you know so the the battle of baltimore ends up you know happening in the revolutionary war instead of in the war of 1812 it becomes a much bigger battle than it actually was. Um, it still, you know, doesn't change the fact that the poem and ultimately the song The Star-Spangled Banner came out of that, but the, the circumstances itself shift and move. So historians always want to think that what we're trying to do is to recover and and analyze the past. You know, let's put it this way. What historians do in some ways kind of analyze what happened, but in order to analyze something accurately, you have to be able to assemble it accurately. You have to have an accurate picture. And that can be a very tough thing to do. And I think that we're always you know, as much as anyone tries, it's a, it's always a, a difficult process. It's a kind of painstaking pro- process. But the main thing is that it's an imperfect one. Because I don't think as hard as you try with anything that you can ever really perfectly reassemble the past. You can get close to what was there, but you're always going to get slightly different versions of it. If that makes any sense.
0: Mm, Makes perfect sense. The reason that I was captivated is because it wasn't the details. And I went and checked one of their sources. Mm -hmm. They did list the Smithsonian. So I kind of thought, well, I'm probably on firm ground. No, it's, It wasn't the detail. It was the atmosphere. It was the theme. It was the aspect. It's what, in this recording, what the current president of the United States did to get elected. He told a story. He laid out a vision. And a third of the country and the majority of the Electoral College went for it. And he's been doing that for three plus years now. Weaving stories, weaving a narrative. He talks about being optimistic. We're in the midst of this extraordinary, you know, whatever it is, and he's talking about being optimistic. It's that not history, but the atmosphere of history that I think that really communicates of a time when we thought of the United States of America as that exceptional country that regardless of what will happen, we will come through. The dawn will rise, and we will still be here with all our values intact. And that's a great uh, uncertainty right now. Anyway, um, let me uh, pause because we're going to try another experiment this morning. We're going to be doing um, uh, repetitions from different artists, different orchestras, different times of a song written by Woody Guthrie back in the 1940s. And as we go through the evening and morning, I'll tell you more about it. In fact, we actually even have a a link I'll put up to give you the backstory of perhaps one of the most interesting contexts of us, of the United States, that has ever been written. In fact, some people have said that this, as opposed to the Star-Spangled Banner should in fact be the national anthem. This is Woody Guthrie.
2: This land is your land And this land is my land From California To the New York Island From the Redwood Forest Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. As I went a-walking that ribbon of highway, and I saw above me that endless skyway, I saw below me that golden valley, this land was made for you and me.
1: Fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of the other side of the news. I hate a song that makes you think you're not any good. I hate a song that makes you think you're just born to lose, bound to lose, no good to nobody, no good for nothing, because you're too old or too young or too fat or too thin or too ugly or too this or too that. Songs that run you down or songs that poke fun at you on account of your bad luck or your hard traveling, I'm out here. comes Lady
2: Gaga. <laughs>
1: and uh wasn't really paying attention but you know she started singing one of my dad's songs and it was like what what i called my sister i said turn on the tv by the time she did it was over lady gaga didn't do the whole i'm out to sing the songs i make it take pride in yourself
2: in the New York Island, from the Forest, the this land was made for you and me, I've i my out, the time. And
0: welcome back everyone, on this Saturday night, May 2nd, gosh, the year is whipping by. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence, and we're discussing um, the origins of this unique experiment. Richard, is it fair to call the United States a unique experiment?
3: Well, for the 18th century, it was unique. It wouldn't necessarily be now. I mean, it was unique in the sense it was creating a kind of republic from scratch. The question then, what kind of republic was it was it going to be? I mean, there's a tendency to, and I want you to keep in mind, I'm, I'm not trying to debunk or dismiss anything, which often is is what you know when you when you're trying to get back to what actually happened and what was going on at the time. Often, see, you know, it, you know, again, turning a battle from hundreds of ships down to 19, but it, it gets you back to the point of what actually what that starting point was, and. The United States constituted itself as a republic, and in the 18th century, those were very few and far between, and it was also a term which had different meanings at various times. So, you know, the republic itself, the concept goes back to Plato and his idea of a republic, which if anybody's ever looked at Plato's republic, it's not much of a republic. It's, well, you know, (laughs) it's, it's ruled by an elite um it it's essentially an, an oligarchy. So the ancient republic of so one of the things that let's say here's an interesting example, when American patriots in the late eighteenth century imagined creating a new republic out of a collection of colonies. They had a kind of historical model. I mean, first of all, they had that word. They don't invent the word. The concept of republic had been around. I mean, Venice, medieval Venice, had been a republic. We wouldn't recognize it as such. But they had the word, and, and they imagined that in a different way than it had been applied before. So they, you know, one of the things they were trying to connect it to was the, the glories of the Republic of Athens – So, really, even by 18th century standards, the Republic of Athens would never have been recognized as any such thing. I mean, Athens was, you know, first of all, a relatively small Greek city-state, dominated by a few powerful families. Um, Only about a third of the population was capable of casting ballots, and only the male members of those. So, when you really got around to it, in Athens, basically nobody had any say in anything. (laughs) But it was nevertheless the concept (laughs) of republic. The concept there wasn't how many people had a say, but that really there should be a kind of collective decision-making. Maybe that's what it really was. That the ancient concept of a republic wasn't based upon the concept of what proportion of the population participated, but that it wasn't rule by one person. That it was a collective rule of some larger community of people, even if they only constituted a small minority, the overall population, that there was some kind of collective agreement that had to be brought together. And that was the big challenge for this new American republic as to how that collective, that system of collective self-governance, that collective agreement that would have to be based upon, uh, you know, how would you would manage that? Because it, it sounds very easy to say that well, we're all going to work together, okay? This is what we all like to say. We're all going to work together smoothly. Um, we're going to bring everybody. We're going to include people. We're going to bring in different opinions. And that all has a very good sound to it, but uh, it isn't necessarily very effective. Because well, wait,
0: wait, wait. The more, yeah. didn't, didn't kings, I mean even King George and all those folks, didn't yeah. they have like privy councils? Didn't they have cabinets? They did. Didn't they? In other words, so there wasn't one – autocrat, he kind of, or in cases like we go back to ancient Egypt, you know, reception. You had a group of insiders that gave advice and then the king or the principal guy or the, you know, whatever, made the final decision, which is kind of like presidents now and cabinets and all that. But it was not, I mean, wasn't the unique idea that the the republic in, in this experiment was to represent the great unwashed the people themselves the citizens the the folks that did everything that made a country even possible wasn't that the unique idea
3: well it was to try to include in theory as many people as possible or, or the whole let's say adult reasoning population should in some way be involved
0: which were men and landowners oh, yeah, I mean, and that kind of thing
3: right british british monarchs had you know they had a council they also had parliament Keep in mind, uh, and and by the way, a uh, back in the 1600s, the British Parliament had already, in the English Civil War, established who had real authority when they cut the king's head off,
2: <laughs>
3: that's that. That again is one of those things that's often forgotten. We all remember the guillotine and the French cutting off a king's head, but people tend to forget that more than a hundred years earlier, the British had decapitated a king. Uh, in, a, in a political showdown with Parliament. And Parliament established its, if not its supremacy, certainly its equality with the king by killing him. And then later by reestablishing a monarchy. So, monarchs, you know, the, the idea of, let's put it this way, the concept of absolute monarchy is as much an historical fallacy as the concept of absolute democracy. Okay? Neither one of those things, with maybe rare exceptions, have ever really existed. But the difference would be that what, in theory, what both Parliament and Privy Council, what all the king's advisors were doing, is that they were advising one person. That one person set above everyone else. So one way to think of it is that the Parliament, with its many, many members, might in fact overthrow a king they might kill a king if that would be necessary, but no one individually or collectively in that body was the equal of the king. Only the king, or in some cases the queen, was the monarch. And everyone I mean this is one of the differences between you might think of it as of a republic like ours and a monarchy, and it's still the case today. No one actually has British citizenship, right? If you're in the UK, you are not a citizen of the UK. You are a subject of the queen. That's what it is that binds you together. That is the common thing that links everyone within the realm, is that they are subjects of the monarch. And that still carries, in the British context, if not necessarily a lot of real political power, it carries a great deal of symbolic power. And you know, politics is, is, is all about symbols. So the idea the thing that the American Republic was struggling with is how do you represent everybody? So in the place here's the difference. Instead of having the monarch, the king or the queen, which in some way is a reflection of us all. That's that's the theory at least, you know that the the, the monarch is more than a mere human being. They become the kind of physical embodiment of Britannia. You know, the queen becomes Regina. She, she, she's not, you know, she's not a, uh, a, a woman anymore. She's not, you know, uh, if anyone who's really interested in this, uh, if they haven't seen it can take a look at the series. Very good. Called the crown.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Which is,
3: yeah. Which is a not a fawning appreciation of the British monarchy. <laughs> But it is it is revealing in some ways of the of the concept that you know uh, the, the the queen or the king of the chase can't they really have no life of their own? This is one of they they have to kind of play this character.
0: Well, doesn't the British character. doesn't the British yeah. system kind of separate head of state, which resides in this embodiment of the nation of the people, the queen in this case Elizabeth, and the prime minister who's really the day-to-day go-to guy to make government work. We have yeah, the distinction we have that yeah. smooshed into one guy or one woman someday maybe.
3: Yeah well, it's the difference between head of state and head of government. So the government you know is whatever politics, whatever elected political officials, whatever sort of parliamentarians are running the, the government bureaucracy, what are in charge of the bureaucracy of the state, and they come and go. So there are elections, and elections establish majorities in Parliament or in Congress, and on the basis, you know, and in the parliamentary system, the head of the government is always the head of the majority party or majority faction in Parliament, and... I mean, that's a kind of an interesting thing. Do you, you know, you we can have a president from one party, and we can have Congress controlled by the opposite party the, mm-hmm. in the parliamentary system. You can't really have that because well, in it, parliament
0: the, you have ministers, and then you have the prime minister.
3: Yeah. Okay. And the prime minister is the closest approximation to a president. He runs the government, but uh, but he has to be he has to be approved by the monarch. Mm. So this is one of the things that I think that series makes very, you know, one of the powers that the British monarch still has is that every person who is named prime minister has to be okayed by the queen.
0: What happens, or and has it ever happened that he or she has said, nope, not him?
3: Yes, but not often. Oh. <laughs> See, that, That's one of those things that would create, as they would call it, a constitutional problem. Mm-hmm. Because in a way, it's a formality. I mean, you could – I mean, and 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 here's why. Well, it's all custom.
0: It's all the norm. It's all. It's legacy. What's the word I'm looking for? Well, custom.
3: It's custom, but the but it's also probably why the British monarchy has survived where others haven't, because one of the things is is that you stay out of politics. See, this is why whenever someone in the royal family publicly expresses an opinion, a political opinion about something, that is a no-no. Okay, You are never – I mean first of all, if you're a royal, you don't vote, or if you do vote, you never talk about it. You never express your views on political issues because that makes the monarchy political and when you make it political then it gets aligned with one party or one faction or another and then someone gets angry at you
0: and this extends to the so, entire royal family right
3: yes and you're you're not supposed to do anything which would which would politicize uh, or to create controversy the, the the theory the idealized version is that the The Monarch, and by extension, the Royal Family, is above that type of thing. Mm. right We are above politics we you know the the Queen reigns as the Monarch of Britain. The people are her subjects. she does not belong to the Conservative Party or the Labour Party. And you see, if if you had someone uh, – if a prime minister was sent forward and the monarch refused to appoint that, that would be a political action. Then they would be taking sides. Mm. Then there would be hell to pay in parliament. So it's not to say that it couldn't happen, but from a political standpoint, it's one of the things that you would want to avoid. Well,
0: I guess as a historian, I was asking, has it ever happened? Do we have a right i
3: think it's i think it's happened well i think it's happened in the nineteenth century i mean british parliamentary history wasn't <laughs> too up on that at that point it's but it's it's a very because the minute you do that you've you've thrown down the gauntlet mm. <laughs> i mean look you can't have The majority in Parliament send their candidate forward to you, and if you reject them, well, yeah, they can just keep sending them back or they could send someone else. But you at that point have have created a controversy with Parliament. You have rejected theirs. I think the tacit rule is that no, you really can't, but the important thing is the symbolism that even if you as the monarch absolutely hate this person, If you think that they are the worst person that could possibly – if you can't stand them and you can't stand their politics, the important part of symbolism is that they still have to come to you literally hat in hand and ask you to pat them on the head. All
2: right?
3: Mm. And and that's this kind of dance that's developed in this. I mean it's all about the – Again, it's about tradition, but it's not just kind of following blind tradition. I mean, there's, there's an
2: important
3: symbolic sort of interplay of power. that The monarch's power is in many ways latent. Okay? Mm. The monarch has powers that they don't use, because to use those powers could create a political confrontation. But on the other hand, there is a tacit respect that those powers exist. So, again, if the idea was that the king or the queen was simply a mere figurehead whose opinion didn't matter on anything, then why would you send your anointed prime minister for them to receive approval? Hmm. Because that's the way the system works. That, that's the thing that kind of binds state and government together.
0: In a country which has no written constitution. No,
3: no. The Constitution is basically just the uh, the sort of legal precedent of everything, which has been done up to that time. Um, and, and is apparently one of the few things, at least up through Elizabeth II, that British monarchs were ever educated in. Hmm. Uh, I thought one of the most, um, to me, most surprising and in some ways, really sort of sad element in that series is that when Elizabeth, still as a fairly young woman, is basically sent—I think they sent her to Oxford—and and, she's to be schooled in you know various sort of arcane elements in, in the constitution, you know how the gov- you know how her government works. She she's instructed in.
0: Was you know, this, the was this before pr- her, her father died?
3: No, I think this is right. I think this is before her coronation. Ah. But she's supposed to understand the symbolic importance of what she's doing. And and what she realizes is that she really doesn't know anything. Mm. Because she's never, keep in mind, she's never attended a regular school. She never went to university. She was educated by tutors, but she was largely educated in. In matters of constitution and matters of the court
0: well, during the so war, comes, she was actually an auto mechanic, wasn't she?
3: yeah, yeah, you know, and learning sort of a practical skill, but in terms of things like history and mathematics, so one of the things that she apparently realized she had an interest in was was math,
2: hmm. but
3: she was never educated in that because that wasn't something that is queen, I mean you know if you're queen, you're not going to have to do you know.
0: Princesses you're not going to have to do
3: your taxes. or You're not going to have to balance a checkbook. <laughs> so why would you ever know these things? And, and she sort of comes to this realization that she's ignorant. Wow. <laughs> I mean, not not that not that she's you know in any way she's a very you know I, I mean an, an intelligent person.
0: This is in 1952, just, I believe.
3: This is in the early in the in the 50s that she's she's really ignorant of much of the things that other people around her know. And one of the things, again, interesting of that, if you watch it, is that that's one of the reasons why she's sort of continuously manipulated by people. I mean, it's – she's continually being told what she can do and what she can't do. And – so an example of that again, I may be giving too much away. Is that you know uh, Elizabeth has <laughs> a a younger notorious sister, you know Princess Margaret. Oh
2: yeah. Some yes. people out
3: there must remember. And Princess Margaret was always kind of getting into trouble because, well, you know, she was the younger sister. <laughs> she wasn't, and and her older sister had only sons, so she was never going to be queen. So amazing
0: but, how but Margaret, how freeing that is.
3: Well, it was Frank, What Margaret wanted to do is that she fell in love with this. Ah, he was an RAF. I'm oh, not going to be able to remember his name. She fell in love with a, a a commoner and she wanted to marry him. And Elizabeth, as her sister, you know, as, as Elizabeth, as Lilibet, you know, Margaret's sister, mm-hmm. wanted to make her sister happy. And there was a... And so she goes, well, yes, you know, you you can do it. We can, you know, of course, if you want to be happy. And then, you know, the members of the court come in and they go, no, this cannot happen at all. You can never allow this marriage uh, because there is a rule. There is a rule which says uh, the younger siblings of the monarch cannot marry without their permission uh, and, and uh, until they're 25. Mm. Not 18, 25. And they're going, you can't, and she's not, and you can't allow her to do this because this would set a precedent. And then literally what Elizabeth has to do is to, you know, and and they tell her that, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, we understand that you're sympathetic towards her as your sister. But when you're in this role, you're not her sister. You are the queen. All right. And the queen isn't swayed by such things. So she literally has to go back, and what I thought was a very well played and painful scene—tell her sister, who she who she desperately wanted to make happy, she had no real, you know, reservation, but that no, I can't, I cannot allow this. Yeah, you know, that the custom, to, that the the natural order of things as they exist do not permit me to do this, and no, that cannot happen. Mm. Now, Margaret did have a choice. Margaret could have repudiated her royal status. She could have said, you know, she could basically have done what Megan and Harry I was did. just gonna
0: and say that, echoes of Megan and Harry.
3: I don't want to play that well that's that's why. If anybody is, is kind of puzzled as to why would somebody give up the wonderful life of being a royal really, it's not all that wonderful of a life. <laughs> Because you're, you're governed by all of these rules, and you know, they just said we don't want any more of this. And you know, and Margaret could have done that. She goes, I don't want to be Pr- Princess Margaret anymore. I quit.
0: It reminds me of that story about Mark Twain that he told one time about re- being ridden out of town on a rail after being tarred and feathered. <laughs> and he said, Well, if it weren't for the honor of the thing, I'd just as soon pass it up.
3: Yeah. it's so, yeah, see, that's another one of those things. If you imagine, uh, you know, the old saying, uh, you know, uneasy is the head that wears the crown. Yep. Uh, there are also just a lot of rules. You know, it, It's just constantly. No, I think it's one of the things that comes across is, is Elizabeth. Much of her life was simply being told by people that whatever she wanted to do, she couldn't do.
0: Mm, sounds they, to me like never, I should it, be adding this to my list of binge watching.
3: <laughs> yes, I think it's uh, I, I think it's it's definitely worth uh worth watching there's a very interesting portrayal in there by an american actor actually of uh john lithgow plays churchill
2: oh in
3: in a way that i've never you know it's churchill very much towards the end of his life and a political career mm-hmm. uh still a very forceful and scrappy guy but but not you know a different kind of churchill than uh than is, than is usually usually portrayed but yeah you know coming back to the yankees you know, who were Englishmen up to a point until they decided they didn't want to be.
0: <laughs> By the way, if you wonder what's going on in the background, that's our coyotes here in the Land of Enchantment tonight. Oh. Oh, I did hear one, yeah. And as soon as I said that, they stopped. <laughs> they used to come and serenade Morella. Oh. Ah. That's real life coyotes in the desert.
3: Well, make sure all the doors and windows are. <laughs> They're all wide open. Plates of raw meat laying out. So anyway, go ahead. Yeah. So it. Well, the the concept in the United States is that sovereignty resides not in the in the monarch, but it resides in the people. Okay. In this concept of the people. So there are the American people. And since the American people have uh, rejected being subjects of a monarch, they have to have other principles to unite them. Because being all the common subjects of a monarch is very important to –
0: Hey, Richard, I I, I hate to cut you off, but we're coming up on the top of the hour. Hard break. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence. We're going into a rather lengthy and – Interesting discourse on the origin of the United States. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I wanna thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.